Top 5 Insane Murder-Suicide Stories The act of killing is gruesome enough, but deaths involving whole families are sinister to the core. The next five stories display the horror of these kinds of brutal situations. These are the top five murder-suicide stories. Number five, Lance Buckley. It was November of 2016 when police from Stafford County, Virginia received a phone call from a man named Lance Buckley. He said he was reporting three murders and a suicide, then the line abruptly cut off. Police traced the call to the Buckley's home, and that's where they found a chilling scene. The entire family, 35-year-old Lance, his wife, 30-year-old Amy, and their two daughters, Claire, who was five, and Abigail, who was just 17 months, were all dead. The three victims were found in the lower level of the home, and each one suffered a gunshot wound to the head, execution style. Police won't say whether the family or the husband had a history of arrests or problems, However, Lance did make national headlines in May of 2015 when he mysteriously vanished while on his way to school. See, at the time, he was a Howard University doctoral student studying microbiology. He was on his way to school in Washington, D.C. when he mysteriously vanished. His wife, Amy, frantically pleaded on various news channels asking for assistance in helping finding her missing husband. At some point, Police believe Lance was in possession of a gun, but his family insisted he was no danger to anyone. He was later found at a campground in Brunswick, Maryland, close to the border of West Virginia, and his disappearance and the circumstances surrounding it were left unclear. Police are also unsure what his motive was for killing his wife and family. Many think that Lance may have been mentally ill, and that this led him to kill his wife and daughters before ultimately killing himself in the horrific and brutal scene. Number 4. The Strax On September 27, 2014, Isaac Strack, the oldest of the Strack children, arrived at their Springville, Utah home together with his girlfriend. He noticed the house was quiet when normally his siblings and parents would be buzzing about. Isaac went to his parents' bedroom but couldn't open the door. He called out but there was no reply, so he decided to call his grandmother. Once she got there, her and some family friends forced open the door, and that's when they found the rest of the family. Benjamin and Emily Stack, together with their three children, Benson, who was 14, 12-year-old Emery, and 11-year-old Zion, were inside the bedroom and all of them were dead. During the investigation, the medical examiner ruled the deaths of the two youngest children to be a homicide, while Benson Strack's death was ruled undetermined since it was unclear if he voluntarily killed himself or not. Meanwhile, Benjamin and Emily were found to have committed suicide. Investigations further uncovered a combination of lethal drugs in the family system. They found empty pill bottles and containers of flu medication, pain relievers, sleeping pills, and cherry-flavored methadone in the home. A concoction of drugs in a yellowish-orange liquid form on the children's sand pail was also present at the scene. The children had toxic amounts of methadone in their bodies, Christy also had the same drugs in her system, along with dextrophin, and Benjamin had toxic levels of heroin in his body. While the scene was disturbing, still the most baffling thing about the murder-suicide is why it even happened. According to friends and family, there were signs. 
For instance, the couple had expressed several times about their worries of the general presence of evil in the world and often talked about wanting to escape the pending apocalypse. The people around them interpreted this as them wanting to move off the grid or take a vacation, but in hindsight, they were obviously more troubled. There were no suicide notes left by any of the family members, but there was indication Benson knew he was going to be dead soon. A goodbye note he wrote to his friend mentioned he would no longer exist on this earth. The note also indicated he was leaving behind his favorite items to his friend. It's unclear why their eldest son Isaac was not included in the murder-suicide. However, police speculate it was likely because he was grown and was engaged to be married. Curiously, Christie had a questionable connection with a famous convicted killer named Dan Lafferty. In 1984, Lafferty and his brother were charged for killing his sister-in-law and her one-year-old daughter. Lafferty said he killed his sister-in-law and niece on the orders of her older brother Ron, who said he had a revelation from God to do so. Christie was obsessed with this crime. When she became an adult, she contacted Dan in prison and became friends with him, and she and Benjamin would visit Lafferty multiple times in jail over the years. Lafferty told police he and Christie were in love, something Benjamin didn't seem to mind. He also said that he cut his long hair and shaved his beard at Christie's request. They seemed to be such good friends that he even went as far as asking the Strax to take care of his remains after he died. However, Lafferty hadn't been in touch with them since 2008. Police are still baffled as to why the parents would kill their children, and to this day, the case remains a mystery. Number 3. Judith, Joseph, and Maria Barsi Fleeing from the Soviet occupation, Joseph Barsi, a Hungarian immigrant, sought to live a new life in New York in 1956. After living there a while, he moved to California and met Maria, a fellow Hungarian immigrant. The two fell in love, married, and moved to Los Angeles, where Judith was then born in 1978. Judith began her acting career when she was only five years old. During the years she was active, from 1984 to 1988, she shot more than 70 commercials, appeared on television, and also participated in films like Jaws the Revenge and as a voice actor for Ducky in The Land Before Time and Anne-Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Even though her career was successful, her home life was the opposite. The more Judith became successful with her career, the more Joseph became angry and volatile, and he would routinely threaten to kill both his wife and daughter. His temper was especially violent when he drank, his alcoholism got so bad that he was arrested three times for drunk driving. In December of 1986, Maria went to the police and reported Joseph's threats and physical violence towards her and Judith. However, police could not find any signs of physical abuse, so Maria couldn't press charges against him. Joseph continued with his threats even after quitting drinking, telling Maria and Judith he would cut their throats and burn down their house. Judith once told a friend her father threw pots and pans at her, which resulted in her getting a bloody nose. She also became so distressed that she began pulling her eyelashes out and the cat's whiskers. When Judith broke down in front of her agent, her mom finally took her to a child psychologist who diagnosed her with suffering from physical and emotional abuse and reported it to Child Protective Services. However, Maria assured the caseworker she was filing divorce against her husband and that she would move to Panorama City with her daughter in an apartment she rented. Although friends encouraged her to follow through with the plan, she never did. 
It's presumed she was afraid of her husband and at the same time scared of losing her home and belongings. On the morning of July 25, 1988, Judith was seen riding her bike in the morning. By that night, Joseph went inside her bedroom and shot her while she slept. Afterwards, he murdered Maria as she came running to see what happened. She was found dead in the hallway. Joseph then spent the next two days wandering around the home. Judith's agent, Ruth Hansen, called the night of the murder and ended up speaking with Joseph, not knowing what had happened. He said he was moving out for good, but needed time to, as he put it, say goodbye to my little girl. After the call, he poured gasoline over the bedrooms and bodies inside the home and set it on fire. Then he went to the garage and killed himself using a 32 caliber pistol. The deaths didn't come as a complete shock to those who knew the family. Friends of Joseph's at his plumbing job have said he expressed more than a hundred times how he would kill his wife. Friends of Maria, who also knew the situation, repeatedly encouraged her to move out, but she didn't out of fear of repercussions from her husband. Later, it was revealed that prior to marrying Maria, Joseph was married to another woman named Clara. She bore two children, Aggie and Barna, and the situation was the same with them. Joseph was abusive, especially when drunk, but Clara eventually filed for divorce and got away. During the investigation, it turns out Maria had filed for divorce and Joseph found out. It was during this time investigators believe he finally followed up on his threats. Both Maria and Judith were buried on August 9, 1988. Judith never saw the movie she starred in since they were released posthumously, but she said her favorite role was that of Ducky from A Lamb Before Time. Number 2. William Bishop On March 1, 1976, William Bishop excused himself from work by telling his secretary he felt ill and was heading to the doctor. Intelligent, sharp, and charming, Bishop had been working as an officer for the State Department in Washington, D.C. for years. He once served as a foreign diplomat, being assigned to various countries like Italy and other places in Africa. Bishop spoke five languages, was an avid tennis player, knew how to fly a plane, and was a veteran outdoorsman. After leaving work that day, he went to the bank and withdrew $400 from his account before heading to the mall where he bought a sledgehammer and a gas can. He filled up his station wagon and the gas can in an adjacent station from the mall, then drove to the hardware store to buy a shovel and a pitchfork. Sometime between 7.30 and 8 p.m., he returned to his home in Bethesda, Maryland, where without warning, he killed his wife using the small sledgehammer. As his mother arrived back from walking the dog, he killed her too. He then proceeded to murder his three sons, 14-year-old William, 10-year-old Brenton, and 5-year-old Jeffrey in the same manner as they lay sleeping in their beds. Under the cover of darkness, he loaded the bodies into his station wagon and drove 275 miles south into North Carolina. In the dense swamp, he dug a shallow grave, piled the bodies, poured more gasoline on them, and set them on fire. The bodies were discovered the following day by a forest ranger who saw the smoke and went to investigate. It wasn't until March 10th when a neighbor finally contacted police after not seeing the family for some time. When authorities did a welfare check, they found blood on the bishop's home porch. They checked inside only to discover blood was covering the walls and floors. A police officer who checked the bedroom where the kids were killed said the entire rooms from floor to ceilings were covered in blood. Police believed the found corpses in North Carolina could be the bishops 
and a dental comparison was performed and confirmed. It was a match, and so the hunt for William Bishop then began. Another week would pass before police found Bishop's 1974 Chevy station wagon abandoned at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. Inside it, they found dog biscuits, a shotgun, a bloody blanket, and a shaving kit with Bishop's medication inside. They also found the spare tire covered in blood. A witness stated the vehicle had been there since March 5th or 7th. The hunt for William has been ongoing, and at one point he was even named among the FBI's most wanted list. Despite reported sightings of him in places like Stockholm, Italy, and Switzerland, investigators don't have a solid clue regarding his whereabouts. Many believe Bishop's background and intelligence, along with his well-traveled experience, has aided him in remaining elusive. As for the motive for his killings, police are baffled by it. They looked into the bishop's finances and couldn't find any financial woes. It was also unclear if there was trouble in the marriage. An age progression sculpture was created by forensic artist Karen Taylor in 2014 at the request of the FBI, and if Bishop is still alive today, he would be 82 years old. Number 1. Elmer Crawford Born in Canada, Elmer Crawford moved to Port Campbell, Australia in 1951, and it was here where he met his wife, Therese. The two then had three children together, Catherine, James, and Karen. On July 1, 1970, the Crawford family was asleep when Elmer took a crudely built electrocution device consisting of a main cord with five small leads and alligator clips at the ends. He clipped these onto the ears of his then-pregnant wife and the two older children, Catherine, who was 13, and James, who was 8, and electrocuted them while they slept. He also attacked and bludgeoned the oldest children using a blunt instrument, smashing their skulls in repeatedly. The youngest child, Karen, who was 6, wasn't electrocuted, but instead violently attacked with what is believed to be a hammer. After they were killed... Crawford took the bodies and wrapped them in blankets before placing them in tarps and stacking them inside his sedan. His next step was to make it look like a murder-suicide instigated by his wife. He took the car and drove it to the top of a cliff. He then stuffed a hose into the exhaust and pushed it through the driver's side window, making it appear as if his wife first killed the children and then killed herself by carbon monoxide poisoning. Elmer released the brake and the car rolled over the edge but there was a hitch. Instead of falling into the ocean, the car landed on a rocky ledge about 20 meters below and it was found the following day. Police couldn't get to the car immediately because of its position, so they had no idea there were bodies inside. They did manage to trace the plates to Crawford and an officer paid him a visit. Crawford didn't answer the door though, and they believe this was when he decided to make a run for it. He was seen by his neighbors later on holding a suitcase and waiting at the bus stop. They exchanged pleasantries, but that was the last time anyone's ever seen Elmer Crawford. When police found the bodies, they went back to the house and found all the blood. There was evidence that Crawford had tried to clean up the carpets with detergent, but the blood stains remained visible. Police tried to determine a motive and found out Crawford and his wife drafted new wills just a week before the incident. If his family died, it would leave Crawford as the beneficiary. Despite the huge investigation that followed, Elmer has never been found. There is currently a $100,000 reward for any information leading to his arrest. Many believe he may have fled to Western Australia or even gone back to his native home in Northern Ireland. 
If he is still alive, he would be around 88 years old today. So there were the top five insane murder-suicide stories. Murder-suicide is one of the most heinous types of murder. It's not enough for these killers to kill themselves, but to make it a point to take down others, usually their loved ones along with them. We have new videos coming out every Wednesday and Saturday, so please remember to subscribe to our channel because you won't want to miss out on what's coming up next. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.